Welcome to the Cancer Youth Thrivers podcast. My name is Andrea Wilson-Woods, and I'm the CEO and co-founder of Cancer U. Join me each week as I interview cancer patients, caregivers, survivors, and providers about their cancer journeys. You're listening to Cancer Youth Thrivers, where real people share true stories. Paolo Banca is a story coach based in London. She helps coaches share their stories safely and with clarity, enabling them to build an aligned audience and to create the impact and income they deserve. She is also a speaker and author of the book, My Cancer Journey, A Rendezvous with Myself, and she is here today to share her cancer story. Welcome, Paolo. I'm working on the pronunciation of her first name. Thank you so much for coming on. Thank you for having me, Andrea. It's a pleasure to be here. Wonderful. So um, take us back. Tell us, um, tell us about your cancer journey. I mean, where did it begin? It began in September 2012. I'm somebody who has had a pretty normal life, who is, you know, the kind of life wherein you go to school, you do college, you do uni. You join the corporate world, you work hard for promotion ratings, performance bonuses, and that's what my life is, life was. And I loved it. And I spent time with family, traveling the world. That's all there was to life. And that's how life continued until the week of my 34th birthday, when I was diagnosed with the most aggressive kind of breast cancer. And that's the moment my life changed. And so I did what I had to do to get through cancer, which is essentially the whole drill, chemo, surgery, radiation therapy, Herceptin for a year, and lots of formal treatment. And um, during this phase and the whole 10 years. So yeah, I'm, I'm still working my way through it. Wow. So, yeah, I'm wow. about seven and a half years old in the world of cancer. That's my age. That's your age. <laughs> I love that. In the world of cancer. In the world of cancer. <laughs> well, how, how did you even get diagnosed? Did you feel pain, feel a lump? What happened exactly? So what really happened in my case was that I found a lump in my body. I found a lump in my left breast. And I would call myself an aware person, medically aware person. And when I found that lump in my body, in my breast, my first response was, oh, I want to know what it is. Because I understand that lumps can be malignant and that can happen to anyone. Despite the fact that I didn't really have any of the risk factors, that uh, the typical risk factors such as smoking, drinking, family history, none of that applied to me. And and yet I was open to the idea. So we checked it at home, my husband and I, and yes, the lump was there distinct. And I thought, oh, let's just wait for two more weeks because it was time for my menstrual cycle. And, and there are changes that happen in the breasts. Sure. So I let that pass for about 10 days and the lump was still sitting there, rock solid. Mm. And then I said, oh, I'm going to go and see my doctor. And so I booked an appointment with my doctor. We called the first line of doctors, general practitioners here, GP. 
And so I went and saw my GP and I said, look, I've got a lump here. I want to find out what it is. If it is good news, that's what I want to hear. But if it is bad news, I want to get on with it. And the doctor understood and he shared my concern and he immediately referred me to a fantastic breast specialist Mm. in our local hospital. And so I actually went to the hospital just for a regular physical checkup or whatever checkup they would do on me. And the doctor who eventually became my consultant as well, my breast surgeon, he was He is such an amazing doctor that when he physically checked me, Mm -hmm. he knew that there was something not right. Mm. And so my plan was in the world and as the world I understood back then, this hospital was very close to my place of work. I used to work in the corporate world back then. What were you doing back then to give us a little more context? Oh, I used to work in human resources and learning and development. That, that's what uh, I used to do, and I loved it. And so my practical plan was, I would do this 9 o'clock appointment, maybe finish it by 9.15, 9.20, half 10 in the morning, and straight away get in at work by 10 o'clock. All sorted here, you see. <laughs> <laughs> that was the plan. What that really happened? The- that was the plan. And so when I was at the hospital, the doctor knew something was, wasn't right. And he asked me to stay back for more tests. And, and this, is, this is not a private hospital I'm talking about. We have the NHS here, and, which is our national health service. So you can say it's, it's not a private hospital. And that means there's always a lot of load, lots of patients there, because everybody has access to the same health service, which... I think is fantastic in our country. And, and so they took me in for a mammogram. And uh, you know how you can always figure out those stares that people give and they look at the screen and say, oh, something's going on. And, and the hippopotamus like silence in the room. Hmm. So that was the first step. And then they ushered me into the ultrasound room. And that was such a long haul. One expert coming in after the second expert, ta da 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 We did that. And I didn't need the brains of a genius to understand something was wrong. And then they said, okay, we are just going to do a biopsy. And then they did a biopsy. This is all on the same day? Oh, one after the other. Wow. In in my national healthcare hospital, and I didn't have an appointment for any of these, but my doctor, bless him, he was so amazing. He could understand that this needed to be dealt right now. And we did the biopsy and, and by then it's about 12 o'clock and I'm exhausted staring at faces that were staring on the screen <laughs> and the silence. And I finally said, guys, you've got to tell me something. And I think they just kind of gave it away when we finished the biopsy. The nurse said, oh, why don't you dress up and uh, have a cup of tea? Huh? And I thought. Monday morning, these guys have been with me for three hours. Who has time to offer a patient a cup of tea? Maybe they do that, but they had been with me for a very long time and I knew something was wrong. And I said, look, you just tell me what it is. I know that the official results are going to come later. And they said, yeah, it's going to take a week. Next Monday, you get the results. But I said, I just want to know. 
what's going on i can see i can feel something is not right and they've told me when you come next week please expect to find cancer oh. so in my case even before i had got the official diagnosis i knew that i would be diagnosed with cancer because of the process that had happened and, and yes there was a chance that uh, it would have gone in my favor and that's what i wanted but the certainty was so high of how i saw things panning out and i know that nobody would say those words to a patient or to somebody who has come for a checkup i wasn't a patient until then <laughs> officially they wouldn't say it because of uh, practical reasons but they said it and so my cancer experience started right from there yeah oh absolutely yeah yeah absolutely they wouldn't have said unless they were they wouldn't yeah. sure so we spent that week googling information <laughs> please whoever is watching this <laughs> if that's your first action don't do it right don't do it <laughs> don't, don't do, do it, it. the first point the first thing that we want to do when we are in crisis we would either freeze we would fight we would fly away or we would fight and my natural response is let's fight this out let's let's arm ourselves with as much information as possible oh my god it was crazy four days and there were so many depressing stories oh, oh my god i just wanted to stop and uh, my husband wanted to stop and that's that's really what we did after four days we stopped reading about cancer online because all we could read were sad stories oh. and there weren't many hopeful stories at least i could find them back then and then the following monday i got the official diagnosis and uh, from just a person i became a statistic in the world of cancer what were the next steps for treatment and did it happen right away it happened right away the cancer obviously would have taken a while to grow in the body and progress in the body but it was going very fast and i was diagnosed at a point wherein there wasn't a lot of time apparently if we would leave it for another four weeks or so then i would be in lot of trouble and therefore we had to take lots of decisions in fact we talked we took lots of decisions on the day i was given the official diagnosis and uh, the following wednesday i was in the hospital we we sorted out everything all the decisions all the reading all the information went back to our doctors understood everything next wednesday which is less than 10 days i was in for the first procedure which was prepping me up for chemo wow um i i can relate not a, not as a patient but as a caregiver and that's how fast it was for my sister from the day she felt pain two days later a biopsy Monday the results came back but just like you the doctors who did her biopsy told us what it was and results confirmed it 2 days later she was in chemo so from the day she felt pain to chemo was a week wow and and yeah your life completely changes yeah 
What was your worst moment during that time? Do you mean at the time of the diagnosis? Yeah, during that whole time from, from diagnosis to last treatment, let's say. To the last treatment. Well, that's a pretty long journey, I would say. That's a journey of over 15 months. I would say my worst moment, obviously chemo and even radiation therapy and surgery, it was very painful. Physically, I was, I had almost every side effect that you see on that tiny leaflet that comes rolled and it has a long list of side effects and you just look at it and say, half of it wouldn't happen. I had almost every side effect that was listed somewhere there. So it was physically a very painful and a very aggressive experience. But I think more than the physical trauma that I went through, my worst moment was after I had just finished what I would call the first phase of aggressive treatment, which was chemo, surgery, radiation therapy. And that would have taken about seven months. I was still on the hormonal treatment and intravenous Herceptin. And I was expecting that that's the moment when I would be elated. I've done the chemo. I've done the surgery, the radiation therapy. I have made it. I mean, that was the goal that I had been working towards for about six, seven months since the time of diagnosis, coming out on the others, coming out to the other side of cancer. And it was such a big goal. And, and that's, that's the tunnel I wanted to cross. And I had crossed it. I had got that uh, all clear, no evidence of disease that we talk about in the world of cancer. And it was great. I was grateful. I knew I had a second chance at life and I felt rubbish. I felt rubbish inside me because the life that I knew about and the person that I knew about, they were all gone. And I wanted to rebuild a new life. And I didn't know how. And I felt so powerless. I felt, life felt really hard in that moment. I felt weak. I was very grateful. Don't get me wrong. I was very grateful. And I recognize that everybody who gets touched by cancer doesn't make it out alive. And I was one of those people who did that. And yet, after, just after I had done it, it was so hard emotionally. And, uh, and the reason was I knew I had to let go of the life as I knew it because my body had changed and I was very poorly. So I couldn't really go back to that life. And I didn't know how to rebuild a new life. I hadn't found my new normal yet. And that phase of flux and not knowing what do I do and what is going to be my next step, it was just so hard. And that is why I say that is the hardest moment because, hey, you have been working towards something big for six months, seven months amidst all the uncertainty and fear and so much physical pain. And when you get there, you just feel rubbish Mm. within yourself. And it was also very confusing time for me exactly because of this reason because my expectation was, hey, I should be elated. That's how I wanted to feel and that's how I had the reason to feel, but that's not what really happened. 
And I did get clarity when I mentioned it to my doctors and I also took help from a cancer support center. And apparently they said it was a very, very normal response. Because you see, I had also stopped seeing my oncologist every two weeks or every week, whatever that cycle was. And so that safety net felt gone suddenly. Yeah. And, and so they had helped me survive and they wanted me to learn to walk again. And it just felt very hard learning to walk again. It sounds like you set a very high goal for yourself though, too, right? You thought that you would be elated. You thought you would feel good. Do you know what I mean? It kind of says, it seems like you set this really, really high goal. And this is not by any means um, comparable, but I used to do marathons to raise money for the charity I started that's for a specific type of liver cancer. And I thought after doing a marathon, I would feel great and proud of myself. And I did for about five minutes. (laughs) And that was it. It was like, oh, okay. Uh, I did that. Now what? And and I was very sort of disappointed. So do you think that was part of it too, that you kind of set yourself up for this very high, high goal, high expectation? I think more than high expectation. Well, there must be an element of it, which would be rooted in not understanding cancer enough because we have never had cancer in our family. I'd never seen anyone grow, go through cancer. I had spent the the first 32 years of my life in India. And in India, cancer is still seen with a lot of stigma and a lot of taboo. People don't talk about cancer there. So even as a 32-year-old, I had never met a cancer patient in my life. Wow. Yeah. And so whatever I knew and understood was from the outside, from, from the media, through the media, watching the ads, mm. doing a bit of reading on my own. I didn't have an insight into an experience of a real person. I just know a couple of people who have been gone, who have been through it, but I've never had a conversation. So when I was diagnosed two years later, I just didn't have that insight yet. And so my expectation was that if this is what I'm working towards, when I get there, it's just going to be such a relief. It'll be so amazing to get rid of that uncertainty and know that I'm going to be here. And that's going to be so assuring for me and and for my family. So there was a huge element of not knowing. So that's where the awareness part was a challenge. And yes, hindsight is a wonderful thing. (laughs) (laughs) Always. (laughs) Always. I can look back and understand that. I can see that. <laughs> what was your best moment during that time? My best moment was right after the first chemo session. So I used to have three weekly chemo sessions. And in between sessions, I would see my breast surgeon and my oncologist. Right after the first session, after a couple of days, or I think it, it was after a week, that I went to see my doctors and they told me that the tumor had shrunk by 85%, which meant that I was responding really well to the treatment. And they said that such a high shrinking in the size of the tumor is not a common thing to happen. Only 10 of 
I think 15% people see that kind of result. So that was so reassuring. I was on top of the world. I'm going to get through it. (laughs) (laughs) Because that was the first hope, first tangible evidence that it's going to be okay. Yeah, I, I don't know. I'm trying to think, but I don't think I know any breast cancer patients or survivors who had that result after their one chemo session. Yeah. That, that's incredible. Um, I want to circle back to something you said that was really interesting that I didn't know. You spent the first part of your life in India. Yep. And cancer is taboo. Yep. Um, has a stigma. Yep. And, and here in, in the U.S., certain cancers have a stigma. But, but not all cancer, um, certainly not breast cancer. Why, why is that in India? Could you tell us a little bit more about that? So this is my understanding of the situation. And as somebody who grew up in that culture, I think this is a distorted understanding of the whole concept of karma, which is an important part of the Indian culture. Now, people, there are different things to understand about the philosophy of karma. But one of the strongest things, one of the strongest tenets is you reap as you sow. As you sow, so shall you reap. And so whenever something happens, the good, the bad, or the ugly, it ties back to this cause and effect relationship, which means that, oh, you got cancer. You must have really messed up in your life. And, you know, this belief is so entrenched. It's like part of our DNA because it's the social and the cultural fabric of the country. And I'm sure it would have started with a very good intention, making people particular about what they do and and take action and ownership for life. Maybe that's how the concept started. But over a period of generations over centuries that's how that's what it got distorted into and so people are ashamed of saying that they have had cancer because hey there's a judgment going back in their own minds in their own minds first as well as in the minds of other people that oh you must have done something to deserve this and when someone else gets there is someone else who's judging them for it and it is one big mess And that's the reason why people don't talk about it. It's not out in the open. I know so many people who, when diagnosed, would just go into hiding. It's changing now. It's beginning to change now. But we still have a very long way to go. That makes sense, first of all. And when I was raising my sister, you may or may not know my story, but I was my sister's legal guardian and parent. Um, I got custody of her when I was 22 and she was eight. So I raised her all through my twenties. And the way I got into the cancer space is she was diagnosed with stage four liver cancer at the age of 15. And I stopped believing in karma. I did um, because I could not understand why this happened to her, but she thought that she brought it on herself because in Chinese medicine, the organ that contains your anger is your liver. Mm. That's where anger resides. And she had a lot of pent up anger at our mother Mm. for just screwing up and abandoning her essentially. 
and she had a lot of pent up anger at her father. She had a different father. He died before she was born. He just, he died in a fatal car accident and she never knew him. So she was mad about that. And she genuinely felt that that anger is what produced the tumors. Now, I, I won't go into it because this is not my interview, but the, you know, there's a whole reason why she got the cancer she did. You know, we were able to trace it back. We know why, but that didn't matter to her. She really felt like it was the anger and a big part of her cancer journey um, before she died was letting go of all that anger. Mm-hmm. It was really important to her to release the anger um, because, because that's what she thought brought it on. So I can really appreciate that. Um, but I stopped leaving karma. I did. I, I, it took me a long time to sort of think about that concept again, right? In a moderated way. Yeah. Well, how do you look at your life differently now? Because I know you have changed careers. So tell us a little bit about that. Oh, so I actually sent away that person. <laughs> away. I packed her up. Oh, and where sent where her did away. she go? <laughs> Gone with the wind. Oh, oh okay. I love it. Okay. <laughs> so, in my case, there's a very distinct pre-cancer and post-cancer version of me and a very distinct pre-cancer and post-cancer version of my life. And that is because when cancer happened and I went through it physically, emotionally, mentally, spiritually, however you want to put it, but I would say all of it. Cancer wasn't just a bump in the road for me. So it wasn't just any medical illness. I believe it was a fork in the road for me. And so I changed my path completely. For example, one of the things that I did was when I didn't know whether I would still be here after I was diagnosed, because you've got to wait and find out, don't you? Yeah, sure. Not everybody makes it out alive. No pun intended there (laughs) in the world of cancer. I just made this promise to myself that if I make it to the other side of cancer, I would do everything in my power to live the rest of my life as meaningfully and joyously as possible. And it didn't matter how long it would be or how short it would be. That's how it felt in the moment during those six months. I just wanted joy and meaning if I had a second chance at life. And I think it was this this belief or this desire that just kept me going. And what happened? Like what happened with your career? You threw away the other person. What happened? Yeah. And so in my post-cancer life, when I got to the other side, when I crossed that tunnel, it was time for me to keep that promise to myself because that's what I wanted, right? More meaning, more joy. And so I said, I'm going to take a good, hard look at my life and how it was. And it was a good life. I didn't walk away from it because I wasn't happy. I was happy. I was good at what I did. I loved what I did. But now I was a different person and I wanted different things or I wanted more. And so I said, one of the things that I'm going to do is one of the things I'll do is that I'm only going to focus on the work that is going to bring me meaning and joy. And that is where I decided that I would walk away from the corporate world and It didn't happen immediately, all this clarity. It took a while, and I did stay in that space of confusion and uh, not having that clarity. And what am I going to do in my post-cancer life? I stayed in that phase for a while, but 
after when I started coming out of it, the decision was I'm going to set myself up as a coach because of all the things I had done. What really brought me joy and meaning and made my heart sing was coaching because of the transformation that it brings and, and the impact that it creates on people. So that's what I wanted to do in my post-cancer life. And that's what you do today? And that's what I do today. That's wonderful. How yeah. long did it take for you after cancer to kind of go from that previous person to becoming a coach full-time? It took me about two and a half years. Okay. But the interesting thing is, because I'm so action-orientated, I, I shared with you earlier that I respond to crisis by taking action. That's my thing. Maybe it makes me feel, well, not maybe, definitely. It makes me feel more in control. It makes me feel I'm doing, I'm playing my part. Whatever happens will happen, but let me do what I can control. Let me do my bit. That's how I feel about it. I would say that in three years from the time of diagnosis, I had enrolled with this fabulous coaching program. And in another six months, I had done the basic qualification and I was doing more of it. And, uh, and in this period, I managed to write a book, got it published. What's the name of the book? You got to tell us. <laughs> My Cancer Journey, A Rendezvous with Myself. That's right. Uh, so we'll put, we'll put that in the notes as well. Okay. So yeah, I did all of that in those three years. I mean, let, letting go of the corporate world because I continued working for six months until I got very poorly and just couldn't do anything. And uh, gaining all this clarity, working through whatever I was, all that state of confusion and the lowest point, investing in my own coaching to find my way forward. And in, in parallel, I was writing my book, got it published. And right after the book was published, which was summer of 2015, I enrolled for my coaching program and uh, yes, got into coaching full-time. That's wonderful. That's wonderful. What is the one thing that you wish you had known at the very beginning of your cancer journey? I wish I really understood cancer better in terms of the secondary losses that happen because of cancer. So when we talk about cancer, a lot of people just think that the loss that cancer causes is the loss of life. And unfortunately, for many people, for a huge population, that is true. But more and more people are surviving cancer. More and more people are living beyond cancer. And there are lots of secondary losses that happen as a result of it because cancer is a long-term condition. A lot of these after effects of cancer, they are permanent. And I just wish I understood them better. Yeah, um, I interviewed a, a young adult cancer survivor. So all of his treatment was done before he mm -hmm. was 18 years old. Wow. And he's had some devastating long-term side effects. Yeah. Especially in younger patients, yeah. If you could do only one thing to improve the healthcare system in the UK, what would it be and why? I think our clinical system is fantastic and I have a lot of respect for it and I have a lot of love for it because uh, in the UK, you have access to exactly the same level and quality of healthcare, irrespective of how much money there is in your pocket. 
And I think that's, that's the most beautiful aspect of our healthcare. So the clinical aspect, obviously there's a lot, lot of load in, on the system, but the clinical aspect is fantastic. Where I would want to see a change and a big change is in the post-cancer, post-clinical aspect of cancer. And this is where I want to refer back to what I said before. So somebody gets diagnosed and, and they go through the, the entire drill of the treatment, whatever it is for them, and, and they start coming out on the other side. And so it's just not possible for them to pick themselves up and just carry on as if nothing had happened. And I don't mean that from an emotional and mental perspective, no. Our bodies actually change. And for a lot of people who have been through cancer, they cannot go back to the work that they were doing before or cannot put in the hours. And so there is this vacuum that I feel is there in the world of cancer. In fact, I would say this doesn't just exist in the UK, but it may be true for a lot of countries. You know that you've got to let go of the life as you knew it. And it's time for you to rebuild a new life. There is support through counseling, but there is almost zilch support, coaching support to help you rebuild that life in the world of cancer. And I think that's one thing I would like to see. I would love to see coaches work with our National Health Service. I would love to see coaches work with the cancer support centers. And, and they do, but the percentage and, and the amount of support that is available is, is little. And I would want to see more of it. Just now, counseling is a thing in the world of cancer now. I would like to see coaching as well because so many people are surviving cancer. They need a hand to rebuild a life because if they don't get that hand, they will just take so much longer to do it. And most of them wouldn't have the finances to invest in a, in a coach. I mean, some of, some of them would, many of them wouldn't. And the sooner we get those people back on their feet, the sooner it will be for them. And the easier it would be on the economy, because then they can again become contributing factors in the economy. And it's good for them financially, it's good for the economy, it's good for them physically, emotionally. I think it's a win-win situation. So th there's a huge vacuum, coaching vacuum in the world of cancer. You're right. It doesn't, it's not just the UK. We definitely need to hear. And I was speaking to a doctor the other day that asked about what kind of courses we're going to have for survivorship. And we discussed that. And what's interesting with Cancer U, we, we had a, our beta a while ago. And to our surprise for our beta, we opened it up to caregivers and patients. They're, they are the end users of our platform. But a lot of survivors participate in our beta because mm. they wanted that as well. And, and yeah. even the survivors said they learned things that they didn't know. And so there's definitely something there. And so I have to ask, because everybody has a different opinion on this. Do you like the word survivorship or do you think we need to come up with a better word? Oh, I'm okay with it. Okay with it. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> it's an interesting word. It's just a... It's, kind of... it's an interesting word. I wish I didn't have it as a label, but I'm okay with it. You're okay with it. Okay. Yeah. All right. Um, are you ready for the Thriver rapid fire questions? Ooh, let's do it. Okay. All right. Beach, desert, or mountains? Mountains, definitely. Beach Boys, Beatles, or Rolling Stones? Ooh, actually none of them. <laughs> not, really a, 
not really a rock band kind of girl. <laughs> oh my, that's awesome. <laughs> uh, what is one word that best describes you? Resilient. I would just not give up. I love it. Before you die, last song you want to hear. It's going to be what is called one of the guzzles, which is a kind of uh, very heavily uh very heavy on poetry kind of uh lyrics. Yeah. And uh, that's the kind of music I grew up with, so yeah, one of those. That sounds beautiful. Uh last meal you want to eat. Oh. I'm such a foodie. Are maybe you? A blended, maybe a blended shake which has lots of ice cream. <laughs> okay. Last person you want to see. I would want to see my husband. Oh. Last words you will speak. I think it's going to be more than one. I would ask for forgiveness, although I'm not somebody who would leave it until the end. but forgiveness is going to be part of it and i would definitely like to say to him that uh, even after i go away he should he should find happiness and joy oh. and one in his life that is so beautiful ah oh, so Thank beautiful you. and aside from cancer you what is one resource that you would recommend for cancer patients and caregivers i would say find out what your local cancer support center is because even if you have the most amazing family you have uh, great support from from your friends it is going to feel a very lonely journey to be on and it doesn't matter whether you are a patient or a survivor or a carer but taking this journey along with people who are on this journey is going to make it easier for you you don't have to do it alone that's what i'm saying ask for help and uh, one of the best ways in which you can do it is by seeking support from your local cancer support center. Oh, I love that you said that. I I know a patient right now who didn't know for a year that down the hall from where he was getting his treatment were counseling services. Right. No one mentioned it to him. No one. Absolutely. And he and he didn't he didn't know to ask. Yeah. actually because i knew so little about cancer because of where i came from and never had the chance to explore i didn't know about them for the first 6 months and then my oncologist may have noticed that i was emotionally starting to go down and that's when he said oh you should check them out and they were on the same premises they they were within the hospital they're right there the whole time but wow. then once i found them i just didn't leave them no <laughs> getting rid yeah they just couldn't get rid of me after that thank you so much for coming on and sharing your story paul did i get it right yes you you did yay <laughs> thank you so much for having me andrea it's been a pleasure Thank you for listening to the Cancer Youth Thrivers podcast. If you like our podcast, give us a 5-star rating and review and tell your friends about us. Subscribe on Apple Podcast, Amazon Music, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you're listening right now. If you want to share your cancer journey with the world and be a guest on our podcast, go to our website, cancer.university. That's cancer.university and hit the contact button. or click the contact link in the show notes. 
You've been listening to the Cancer Youth Thrivers Podcast. Real people, true stories.